Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. Okay, for uh, today's episode, uh, welcome everybody. Thanks for listening. We will have, um, I'll start off with a recap of my latest Old School Essentials uh, D&D BX mashup uh, game, and uh, then we'll take some calls. So first of all, here comes the recap. All right, I finally got to play... um, to my old school essentials game, we, we I think we've had nearly a month off because of scheduling conflicts and uh, people had not being able to show up and just not wanting to to uh, advance too much with without most most of the players. I'll usually play if one person is absent. You know, I'll, we'll go on if there's two two or three people gone, we'll just reschedule. But um, we decided to press on. Tonight we had we had one player out and one player that was kind of late, uh, so <clears throat> I decided to rather rather than you know the last time a player couldn't make it and we went full in with the full party that that person lost their character and they were a good sport about it they were always kind of the understanding that we can use their character as an NPC and what happens happens but uh, I still kind of always I still kind of felt bad you know somebody losing their character while they were gone <laughs> and it wasn't a TPK their character was the only one that, that died so uh <clears throat> so I just uh we just had the those the characters associated with those two players fade into the background at least initially um but last time they had you know finally gone to deal with this issue of orcs raiding on the the tradeway and they encountered uh I remember a, a some some bandits, human bandits who were using orc battle masks, and then additionally with face paint to make themselves look like orcs. Unless you got up close and really took a good look um, enough, and then but they were accompanied by some ghouls, which were are actually dead orcs, and and, and ghouls are corpses that are possessed by a demon so so that they're you know you know zombie is just a reanimated corpse but in the mythic world of Erd, a, a zoo a, a, a ghoul is is a it's it's also a reanimated corpse so it's specifically animated because it's been possessed by a demon as opposed to just infused with with uh bl- black magic so um and then when you kill the ghoul the demon goes back to whence it came and that's kind of the, what we're shaping up to, to, to really demonstrate. They had a, a brief encounter with a single knoll, and we got to talk about this a little bit now with ghouls, is that um, chaos and, 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 and that kind of dark, evil chaos, cosmic chaos, I, I'm not thinking that it doesn't or very rarely would it ever manifest in the world of Erd the way it does in D&D where you just open a gate to the abyss and a demon bops out. <laughs> That's not how demons come into the world. They have to take, they're intangible and they take possession of uh, or attach themselves to, to something that is in the world. Um, and so uh, that that's how you would interfe- interfere with um, you know, extra planar beings of chaos because uh, we don't really have this big fleshed out 
uh, great wheel cosmology that has come to kind of really be standard in D&D. Um, there's really nothing, you know, nobody really knows what's beyond, but <laughs> we just know that demons are kind of these, these beings of chaos and they want to sow destruction and unmake the world and in any way they can tempt, uh, influence the world or they can tempt or manipulate or corrupt people into doing it for them. That, that's kind of what they're all about. And so, uh, but yeah, gnolls and ghouls are both examples of where, you know, a gnoll is, is a, beast that has been possessed and mutated into a savage, ravaging humanoid. Uh, and then a, a ghoul is a corpse that's possessed by a demon. Anyway, um, so that's what they discovered. But because the orc bodies or orc corpses have been used for these ghouls from the perception of everybody who gets attacked, they're being attacked by orcs, and it's just lightning quick ambush, you know, uh, and the ghouls are completely silent before they attack, per the rules of uh, of basic basic expert D and D. They're they're undetectable and they're silent until they're just right up on you and attacking you. So of course the ghouls rush out of the bushes and in kind of melee and they paralyze anybody that they hit, um, or most of the people that they hit. <clears throat> and the bandits kind of attack with with bows. So it just looks like an orc ambush to, to anybody who. You know, in the seconds before they die, <laughs> uh, and then as, as we've established with uh, Celestina's retainer Dominique, they <clears throat> kind of blindfold their captives and, and hand them off to the goblins for slave labor. If they take anybody alive, and then anybody, the few people who've escaped, it all happens so fast and it's so horrifying that, that all their perception is is a bunch of orcs ambushed us and it was terrible and bloody and terrifying and I barely got got out with my life. Um, so they, they used up, had to use up some spells and some resources to really confront, deal with these ghouls in the last session. So they go back to the near, nearby where the, their, their dwarven allies have, have reestablished control of the, their mine, uh, and, and, and got the kobolds to move out peacefully. Um, so they rest up there, get some healing and uh, recover their mounts. They had left their mounts there because it was just a short walk. And they decide they're going to go back and start from the side of the battle and track, see if they can figure out where these uh, these, these people they fought came from. So they, they they do track them into the woods. And the woods, is or it's, this is kind of a wooded, hilly area, so it is, it is rife with, with caves, as they've discovered. Uh, and they find a cave entrance that the, that the tracks lead up to, um, and it is sort of decorated with skulls and severed heads around this cave. And there's this sort of row of skulls and severed humanoid heads kind of perched on, on a ledge above the, the cave entrance and, and off to either side of it. Um, the, um, so they're kind of scouting around the general area before they go in the cave. And Roderick discovers another cave. So two things are kind of going at once that involved two of the characters. Dolly the dwarf, um, because of, of um, you know, I, kinda, I rolled to kind of see who noticed this. Um, and Dolly was the one, the, the one player character that saw it. So, and, and just independently, Roderick had kind of wandered off, <laughs> kind of out of view of this. So he finds this other cave that's sort of back in sort of the undergrowth. And, and these two things, it worked out perfectly I couldn't have planned this better if I'd forced them to do it. While 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 Roderick is um 
looking at the cave, I go, well, you know, you get this whiff of from the cave that's this smell of rotting flesh that's really familiar from your fight yesterday. Um, and because Roderick's a paladin, I'm like, and your paladin sense starts tingling. You, you feel a presence of, of evil and chaos here. But right before we got to that, as he's wandering off, what I rolled for Dolly was one of the head's moves. Just really so briefly, just out of the flicker, she sees it out of the corner of her eye. Nobody else sees it. And she's like, did that head just move? What? So she's thinking it's, it's, it's a, you know, crap. Now we've got, you know, then, then the Roderick's like, uh, guys, ghouls. Um, so everybody's thinking, okay, well, we've got a severed head moving and we got ghouls in a cave. This is going to be all undead, you know. Um, so they have to deal with the ghouls. They, they, they can't mess they have to stop paying attention to the heads because the ghouls are coming out of the, the cave uh they get some um because they were spread out enough that they were able to kind of pepper them with some uh crossbow and bow fire um but then uh before the ghouls could close into melee range and then uh also they got some good initiative rolls that kept further happening and then roderick um was able to turn them uh turn undead call upon the power of his saint, St. Cyrus, and turn undead, and, and the ghouls go retreating back into their cave. Um, and they decide, well, they're going to, instead of chasing the ghouls in the cave, they're going to focus on this, this main cave entrance that's been lined with skulls and severed heads. So Dolly kind of walks up again and is looking at this head that she swears she saw move. Um, and it's, it's continuing to sit there, so she picks up a rock, and she throws it and hits it in the, hits it square in the in the face, and it screams out in pain, and it, from her perspective, it rolls back into a hole that's behind the head that had kind of been concealed behind it. So uh, she gets closer and kind of crawls up a little bit and realizes that it's it's more of an opening into a ca- into a, a cavern or a cave. There's a little alcove, uh, and there's been a, a curtain that's kind of gray stone color that hangs over this window, so you could pop your head up under the curtain and it looks like your head is resting against the side of the cliff um or with its chin on the ledge and so maybe that wasn't a head it was something else it could be a person so she throws a she lights a powder bomb and throws it in the hole and everybody hears it blow up and then there's all silence so dolly decides she's going to crawl up and go through the hole everybody else goes into the main entrance so from dolly's perspective she crawls into the hole there's this dead guy there. It's another one of these bandits who's made himself up to look like an orc this time so he could actually look more like the severed head of an orc and kind of watch out the uh, over the entrance. Um, and then also there, there's this, there's a cavern that's been set up with tables and, and uh, plates and stuff. It's, it's obviously some kind of um, feast hall or, or dining area. Uh, and there's a couple of large curtains that, are, that have closed off and... and exit out of the cave, out of this cavern, into somewhere else. You, you can't see what's behind it. And then and then on, that's on one side, and the other side, there's a, a short passage that she can tell probably goes back to the main cave entrance. So she creeps up, and she peeks behind the curtain, and what she sees is it's a common area, and there's some bandits in there who are readying weapons because, you know, a bomb just went off. <laughs> um, but there are other people in there. There's like, camp followers and, and even some children. Um, you know, and it's, it's clear that this is a mercenary company that who has set up camp in these, or, you know, a base in these, ca- these cap, this set of caverns. 
and these are their, you know, their cooks and their seamsters and their spouses and their children and their, you know, it's a mercenary band. And these, this is, this is the camp, the, the, the train that follows the camp followers. Um, so she creeps back into the dining room and crawls down and, and, and crouches behind a table to see what's going to happen. Meanwhile, the rest of the group comes in the main entrance and, and pretty quickly encounter four more bandits in a, in a side room. They take two of them out real quick and the other two's morale breaks and they surrender. Uh, so they tie them up and have them captured. Um, but not before, but while they're doing this, this before they subdue the other two, there's, there's battle cries and shouts. And so these guys are already getting ready on the far other side of, of where Dolly is. Um, so they come running out from behind their curtains to, to, to see what's happening out there. And they, they get, they have to stop because Dolly is standing there and there's a lot bunch of them, but they can't just run past her now because, you know, she, she's kind of positioned herself in a, in a place where they, between the tables and the, the wall, the cave where they, they, you know, anybody that goes past her, she, she can get a shot in on them, you know, because of the way, kind of the way BX works, you know, you can't just, you can't move into the melee and then out of it. You can't just move past people. If I'm if I'm adjudicating the rules correctly, but even if I wasn't, it, it made for a cool battle. So anyway, so that was really cool. But now she's in there by herself. But as they're fighting, kind of in this this alcove, this kind of section of the, in, in the entryway, you know, once they kind of fight with these guys, you know, Harold, the other fighter, he can look back over his shoulder and see that room with Dolly in there and these guys coming out. So they all kind of shift their focus back that way and start to converge into this dining room. You know, another small unit of patrol of, of bandits comes to see from, from another side passage, and they're kind of there's kind of three they're kind of surrounded from three areas, but they held their own pretty good. Um, you know, I think a couple people took a couple hit points of damage um, just by the luck of the die rolls, and, and and they were using good good tactics and good positioning. Um, getting the hang of kind of the, the order of operations and the way the action economy works in, in, in uh, BX. Uh, Roderick, um, once once some of the bandits stopped shooting with their bows and, and closed in, uh, he did take a pretty s- serious hit from, uh, he got stabbed with a short sword and went down. But fortunately, his um, he's, he's got this Hegel, this cobalt retainer that he's has started tagging along behind him. Uh, you know, I give I give people one round to save somebody when they drop to zero, and Hegel uh, fished a healing potion out of his pocket and gave it to him. So so they spared Roderick, and Roderick was actually able to get back in the fight there for the last round of it. But other than that, they pretty much wiped the floor with um, with these bandits, particularly Dolly. Like 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 she only got hit once for for kind of a little bit of damage there at the end, and. She's at second level now, so I use the rule where um, if you're fighting one hit die or, or less enemies, you, you get fighters and, and fighter types, which would include dwarves. They get one attack per level, so she's second level now, so she's got two attacks. Harold, the other fighter, has two attacks. Um, and so, you know, you know, Harold initially was fighting with a bow, but then he closes in with a pole arm, and then she's got her battle axe, so they, they're doing pretty good taking people out, but... Uh, there was one point, and this happens with Dolly. Her player has the the luckiest rolls. She, she first attack is a pretty solid hit and and kills 
kills that she's got like four guys bandits surrounding her kills him second attack rolls a crit and we use a we use a, we use a crit rule house rule <laughs> just it's him and just i said well the other two guys are now just splattered with blood and i was gonna have those i wasn't i wasn't even gonna roll morale on those guys i, I felt like that's enough to justify them just to be like ah, we're little peons with three hit points this is not worth tangling with an angry dwarf um, and she's just lucky, you know, it's BX, you can't power build a dwarf fighter the way you can in, in, uh, in other more modern versions of D. She just has really good die rolls and, and a pretty good strength score, so, but she, she's always seems to be a terror on the, the, you know, the goblins and bandits and, and, and <laughs> kind of minion kind of characters that all run up to mob around and then she just mows through them. It's pretty funny. Uh, and I think between her doing that and, <laughs> didn't come into play this time, but our wizard Celestina, her sleep spell, which is pretty, you know, there's no save in BX. It just ends the fight, you know, if it works. I uh, think, you know, our two, the two, the, the, the two uh, women in the party are kind of the, <laughs> kind of the game changers a lot of times. Uh, so that's, that's pretty cool. But, um, the, uh, the capture, <clears throat> so they've got two captured bandits from, from when they came in the door. Two of these bandits, one of them actually runs back into the room with the camp followers. His morale breaks. Another one, the last one standing, just uh, a lot of them don't get the chance to surrender. So uh, he drops his sword and is like, hey, man, I, you know, I surrender. So they, they, they get their captives together along with the, the non-combatants. And they, they get the story of why they're there. And the, 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 these bandits themselves, mercenaries, don't know a whole lot. They're a mercenary band. Their captain manages their contracts and payroll. And so so they he would be the one who would know what's up. They just know they were came here and told to, to raid along the tradeway and stop travel. And to shown how to disguise themselves as orcs to do it. Um the ghouls, they don't, you know, the, the the ones they're talking to now, you know, really aren't fond of the ghouls. They creep them out. They're stinky. They're gross. They're scary. Uh, the ghouls live in this other cave nearby, and they just kind of, when it's time to go out on a raid, somebody has to go up to the door and, you know, kind of say, hey, we're ready, and then some ghouls will come out and join them, and they'll travel over to, you know, walk over to the road and start, you know, ambushing and attacking anybody that happens to show up for the day. Um, so they have no idea about what kind of magic or, or what kind of, you know, if there's some kind of witch or sorcerer or something that's created these ghouls or where they came from. They were already there when the when this company showed up and started to set up <clears throat> uh, uh, their, their base in the caves. Uh, but they are willing, you know, they're, they're offered the opportunity to... Uh, Help lure the captain out of the cave. The captain has not shown up, and there's some other bandits probably running around deeper in the caves. Uh, and they say, "Well, he may be in his chambers. He may not be here. Sometimes he, he's not." And he has he has some way that he comes and goes without any of us knowing when he comes and goes. So he 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 might be here, and he might be hiding or hold up somewhere. He might not even be here, but but we'll help you uh, try to draw him out if if he is here in exchange for you know. Um, they probably would have done it for their lives, but Roderick actually act, act, offered to pay him a little bit to, to turn, turn coat on, uh, and, you know, he's a paladin. He, he, he's required to, uh, to, uh, to be heroic, but he's not, I, I, he's not the saint that he follows is very much a stern, um, 
you know, champion of, of, of order and justice so that, you know, he can, he, he can, he can be a little bit of a, of a, he didn't have to be a nice guy <laughs> to, 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 you know, to, to fit the, the, the paladin for this particular type of saint, but he can still kind of technically be that lawful good guy. He's just not, just not lawful nice and, you know, roughing up bad guys and, you know, playing to their weaknesses to try to get justice done is, is it, it kind of a gray area, but it's, it's, it's okay. Um, so that's where we left off there. I, I told them that between now and the next session, if through our, our group chat, they want to flesh out their plan a little more and, 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 and come up with some other ideas or if they have any other questions that they want to pose that, that I can answer before we start the next session. And that's where we'll pick up. So I, I thought it was a really good, um, good fun session. Uh, and they're discovering a little more about, you know, what the heck is going on around here. Uh, also, you know, part of what they were sent to the orcs, the, the hobgoblins said, well, the, the orcs have the kobold queen. The bandits have no idea, you know, the, the orcs, quote unquote, which are these bandits have no idea. But again, they say, you know, our captain may have more information on that. So that was uh, our, my latest session of Old School Essentials. And I, I guess I forgot to mention the, the player showed up late, and I just had his character and, and his retainer, kind of walk in behind him, and was like, "Oh, hey, we finally caught up with you guys. You know, we found your horses and came in, and, <clears throat> and then we just went on like they more or less like they'd been there the whole time." Uh, so, so, and, and then at that point, I brought in the missing characters, players' character as well, just to kind of be there, kind of in the in the back to, uh, so that when we. I knew we wouldn't kind of leave the dungeon uh, before this was over. So next time, when they if the, if they all show up, they're all right there together uh, without having to kind of do any kind of mental gymnastics or or break anyone's verisimilitude, 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 <laughs> whatever, um, for the for the for the narrative aspect of the game. Okay, now we're going to get into some uh, some phone calls in response to some previous uh, discussion and uh, session summaries and other things from the last last couple episodes before this one. You know, I was gonna I was gonna say I don't necessarily agree with you that there it's better to have rules and then you could throw them out, uh, but of course I'm also coming from a position of knowing how to do exploration and stuff from having played other editions or currently playing other editions, so. Yeah, you know, sometimes you got to look at it like, yeah, somebody picking up 5th edition, uh, many people picking up 5th edition have never played D&D before. So, right, they would have no kind of procedure. So that is kind of nice to have that worked out. I'm not a fan of, like, social skills being uh, roles that you make. But at the same time, having something in place so that can happen um, is probably a good idea. And I like what you're getting at with the different reputations of where you are. But I will point out that, again, the implied setting of 5th edition, and I know you can play it any way you want, is super high magic. So I don't think your small town's points of light. I think you've got people teleporting all over the place and people flying around on Pegasus and stuff. I mean, that's like the basic uh, 5e structure in my mind. Uh, but of course, maybe that's kind of thinking of uh, Forgotten Realms, which is high magic. Of course, I say that with only marginal uh, knowledge of the Forgotten Realms. But in my experience, so I'll revamp that, Forgotten Realms seems to be pretty high magic. And also the just the nature of 5e, people don't, you know, so many classes having cantrips. Uh, you know, there's just magic everywhere. So I don't think it would be that easy to be unknown or that easy to hide yourself if you started really screwing off. 
But I will say something, I'm reading a book right now, and it's really interesting because they're trying to avoid being seen, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're going to places where they're not known, and these are adventurers who seem to be uh, experienced, we'll say. It's all very, you know, mysterious right now because I'm still early in the book, but they're, they're particularly going to, like, small towns and villages to be uh, nobody so that people will not notice them. So that's the other thing, right? Too much notoriety means it's hard for you to hide. So all that can be super interesting. Uh, and I like where you're going with the idea of like kind of keeping track of it. And I don't think it'd be that hard to do really, if you've got like a little notebook, uh, you know, unless they're going from town to town to town, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be that much work. Yeah, I, I know that uh, Coriolis, which I, my first message was about, uh, has like a reputation, which, which is used and that's pretty cool. Um, but D&D, the only thing I can think of that's close to that is the old first edition Oriental Adventures had like kind of an honor thing. I haven't looked at that book in a long time, but I know that it was affected by deeds that you did and also basically by your family, where you were born, all this other stuff. And that did affect people, like how they uh, treated you. And it had a mechanical effect in the game, as far as I remember. So it wasn't really a reputation, but it did have that same kind of feel to it. So uh, that's the only thing I know of. I'm sure there's other, or I, I would imagine there might be other like supplements or things that have something similar, but just in like base D&D, uh, I don't can, can't think of any. Hey, BJ, just listening to you talk about the WebDM podcast that you just listened to about the 5e expansion, which I think is going to be closer to a 6e, but that's neither here nor there. Something you said rang so true to me, and it was, it's easier to have a rule and decide to not use it than to not have one and need it. And yeah, man, that's one of my big bugaboos with the OSR and the rules light style games. Uh, so I'm getting ready to run Beyond the Wall, which is a great little OSR game, even though I'm sure there are some folks that would say it's not OSR because that's the OSR. <laughs> but yeah, so I know this is going to be a fae based one shot. And I know some of these fairy are going to be the nasty little kind of fae that are the drowning kinds. So I'm having to figure out how I'm going to run grappling in this game. And it's taking some time. Uh, for me, I feel like that time could be better spent with building out the village or world building. Better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Peace out. Hey, BJ, I don't know for certain, but I think I remember the birthright setting for D&D &D having a, like a prestige score, a popularity score or whatever. I don't, I don't know, and I'm not looking it up before I make this call, so maybe... Maybe it's in birthright. Anyway, man, great episode. Peace out. Yo, BJ, so in response to Daniel, I talk about how I move my monsters around the way they would move around if they were really in the world. I don't just make them teleport in and out based on what a dice says. I make it, you know, so they're moving around in the world as they would. They don't just sit in one room. That's That's what I was talking about. I don't know if he made it to the end of my call. That's not really something he does. But yeah, man. Uh, my monsters move around. I don't need a table to tell me to do that. Anyway, peace out. Hey, BJ, Jason here. Just want to say that as far as great recaps, as always, um, I'm going to point people over here, actually, to listen to your recap for Tomb of the Savage Kings. After I correct a couple things, you, mistakes you made about the... You, you downplayed Idris Khan's importance in that adventure, because obviously... You know, he could have easily walked through that by himself w without the help of, of your piddly characters. But the more important reason I'm calling is reference Joe's call. Oh, before I do that, because I only have less than 30 seconds left on this call, 
I will say that the reputation thing, yeah, man, I think it's there's something really interesting here. I hope pe- more people join in. And I'd love for us to come up with, not super codified, but, you know, maybe a PDF page or two of, like, how to incorporate reputation into games. And this is a fluid enough system. It's kind of system agnostic. But, yeah, I'd love to see this in games because I think there's a lot to it. Okay, now let's talk about the the Emperor's Throne Room thing. So, to be fair to Joe Richter, he didn't, to answer, I think, Daniel. I think Daniel's one for Carl. Anyway, I think Daniel called Joe out. Joe didn't say he would leave everybody in the throne room, or he he didn't want to use... What Joe said was he didn't like to use water monster tables because he is sight impaired, and... He didn't like having to roll the dice, look at the table, look a monster up in the in the book, all that kind of stuff. He, so he figured out what monsters would be in his layers or in his dungeons, and he figured out their daily schedule. So depending where the players are at what time of day, he knew, you know, if the monster would be going to take a crap or if the monster would be walking to the, you know, you know, to the kitchen or if the monster would be on patrol. So he and he did it that way, so as opposed to wandering monsters. So Joe's monsters aren't static, and they're moving, but he has a pre-built schedule, effectively, in his brain of where the monsters are at any given time. So if it's 2 p.m., Ogre 3 might be in the South Corridor, that kind of thing, right? If it's 3 p.m., Ogre 3 is probably in the kitchen. And if it's 4 p.m., Ogre 3 is probably in the throne room because he, you know, the results of being in the kitchen, right? That kind of thing. And when I say throne room, of course, I mean the room with a thinking seat in it. But anyhow, I think that kind of explains Joe's position a little bit better, which I think is interesting, but I also think it's a lot of work. And personally, I prefer wandering monster tables, I think, but I'm not sight impaired yet. So, you know, I understand why Joe's doing it the way he does. And the way he's doing is is not wrong at all. I think it's a good way to do it. I, But for me, I, I like wandering monsters a little bit better. One might even say Joe's method is maybe a little more realistic. I don't know. I'll throw that volatile comment out there and see how people respond. Okay, so that was a series of messages from uh, Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep, uh, Joe Richter of Hindsightless, and uh, Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, all commenting on my comments and one another's call-in comments (laughs) on a number of topics we've had going on uh last several weeks so let me try to unpack all that um reputation yeah we've been talking a little bit about reputation they they all mentioned it somewhere in there um i I think daniel makes a good point that that the setting is probably going to depend on um if you talk about a, a points of light setting which is that that idea that there's little pockets of civilization and then vast distances of hostile uh, poorly cleared and, and, and uh, traveled wilderness uh, where the adventures take place and just and just getting from, from one point to the points of light. A point of light is, is a point of light in the darkness of a, of a dangerous world. That Yeah, you might just have a local or a very small region where you'd have a, a reputation and people would know you or know of you and then they've never heard of you unless you've become some sort of really epic legend in your own time kind of figure. Uh, over in the next pocket of civilization, uh, they you know they tried to make Forgotten Realms into that with the spell plague because points of light sort of resurged as a, as a, as a theme they wanted to do for fourth edition, 
And I think people just didn't like it along with a lot of stuff. They did that to the Forgotten Realms to try to cram it into the some of the new new gaming philosophy they wanted to put in 4th edition. But I think Daniel's right. When you look at, at Forgotten Realms, I've always said that for, Forgotten Realms is the is the comic book universe equivalent for, for Dungeons and Dragons. And so you, you play to that aesthetic. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's high magic and, and uh, fantastic. And and it's just, uh, you know, Elminster and Drizda Warden and those kind of people are, are basically the uh, Tony Stark and uh, Stephen Strange and Captain America of, of their... Uh, action adventure universe there which there's no problem with that I, I i like i like playing in the forgotten realms and i like the forgotten realms so yeah i think you would have to look at sort of some of the base assumptions of the setting to know how far your reputation could travel um you know based on the 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 the, the uh the greatness or the the the, the true true you know i think a truly huge legendary figure it would eventually get there but um Versus just sort of middling level heroes, they may never be known anywhere more than fifteen or twenty miles from home. You know, it just, it just depends on the setting. So I think Daniel has a good point there. And yeah, I think I think um, you know, uh, Jason kind of alluded back to uh, to reputation as something that we should keep talking about because it, it, there maybe there is something the idea that it might ultimately become a pretty simple house rule or. or, or um, set of principles you can work on and it just affects how you your, your any kind of social interaction or reaction adjustments or things like that uh, might, might come into play depending on your notoriety and 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 how well you're known in a given reason and what you're known for so i'll keep playing around with it maybe i'll come up with something and we can come up with a little pdf that, that several of us can kind of contribute to and maybe even play test a little bit and then who knows maybe to wind up on dm's guild or just you know, somewhere like that at some point. Our contributions to the community. <laughs> oh, so we talked about reputation. We talked about wandering monsters. I think I think whether you've got sort of a a schedule you follow, or it's completely random, but random on a table that makes sense for the location. I, I think either way, you're kind of dealing with uh, the problem of of depend. It seems a little more challenging and a little more meaningful if, if, if the party wants to pick when and where they choose to infiltrate the dungeon or, or break into the temple or whatever whatever thing they might be pulling off um if, if that has some salience because they put the effort into it you want to you want to make make it rewarding uh, maybe not just with success but at least rewarding in that it's clear that something happened because of when and where we chose to uh to act or not act um but but i i think However, that works for the DM probably works well. The players probably don't care from what they see on their side of it. Is just we're never exactly sure what's going to happen. And we have the sense that <clears throat> there's motion, there's dynamic motion in the passage of time inside the you know in, in the world, and that things aren't just sitting around waiting to react to us when and if we show up in the exact same way they would on Monday versus Tuesday and winter versus summer and. You know, at midnight versus noon. You know, I, I think as long as the players are kind of understanding that, and it, it adds to that sort of challenge of the game. So, yeah, I think that I think whatever your procedure is, it's kind of nice to have a procedure, formal or informal, as a DM to to, to breathe that life and that that kind of dynamic sense of of time and space that that moves around in the game. Uh, although that is extra work. So whatever works for you as a DM to allow you to do that, but 
keep it as simple and as, as easy for you to use because if it if a, if a tool becomes too difficult or unwieldy, you're just going to set it aside and quit using it, and then you lose out on the kind of the, the pros of that, the, the, the upside of that. Um, on having a rule and not needing it as opposed to needing and not having it, I, I think I think it's kind of cool to hear Daniel talk about that because I know Daniel especially likes the old school stuff and, and kind of a rules light, sticking with things like uh, not, 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 not a game without crunch, but certainly, um, you know, games where there's a little more room to freeform stuff when, when you don't have a procedure or a rule if, if one is not needed. But, uh, but those of us who have been doing this may have learned we have a procedure whether we know it or not. It's just kind of the way we do it. You know, it's, it's, it's our own me- method that, that we may have written down or we may just kind of act on our gut. But if you watch people act on their instincts often enough and <laughs> time and time, you might be able to see a pattern. Um but yeah, for new DMs, it's real helpful, and that's that's again. I, I think um, I had made a comment, particularly about a recent episode of Web DMs uh, Patreon podcast, which isn't open to everybody, where they had talked about. Um, and this isn't the first time that the, the, the guys at Web DM have pointed this out that, that one of the one of the things that seems to become more apparent that's missing from Fifth Edition that would be very helpful are some kind of structure to, to use for exploration and social interaction. You know, the idea is that there are three pillars of play, combat, exploration, and social interaction. And we have got lots of rules about combat. We've got a set of rules about exploration, time, movement, vision. But combat, you get them, you kind of get it laid out in one place in, in, in the in the rules where you can read through it and you understand how combat works, the exploration stuff is scattered and it's a little buried and there's no procedural layout the way there is with combat, so it's there but but you have to go hunting for it in, in several locations, as as the dungeon master if you want to do it and then, and then social stuff, there's not much and again social stuff is probably the stuff you want to be the more free form and natural flowing and, and improvised and things like that you don't want to bog down in as many rules. But sometimes there are ways that, that it's helpful to have things like a way for randomly determining it, where you would use reputation to help structure um, the reactions in certain situations of of non-player characters and and how things might affect people as they try to uh, to interact with townsfolk and farmers and law, you know, legal authorities and and people like that. Um, so there is some room for that, but but I know, uh, and then we don't have any domain management. I mean, we have we, you can figure it out. Again, it's kind of scattered around, but it's not as robust as it once was. But I think it's interesting that some of the people who have become very popular uh, around, particularly around fifth edition, commentary and contributions through their YouTube channels and their podcasts. Um, Matt Colville, who's who's managed to through Kickstarter build his own design and publishing studio because of the response he got on his first book. And, and, and his one and the one that's follow up are about domain management. It's actually some rules that, that are helpful to use for building a domain, getting, getting you know, staffing your, your keep or your stronghold with the kind of people you need to make it run and how to, how to defend it from rivals and, and engage in conflict between, you know, two domains and things like that. So, because that's just not there in any kind of easy digestible form. 
Uh, and the WebDM guys are uh, have one coming out on. They kind of created a, a post-apocalyptic uh, uh, kind of like, kind of a Mad Max meets Dark Sun setting, but buried within the structure of that are going to be rules for survival and wilderness and wilderness explanation and, and hex crawls and things like that that we don't get a lot of robust rules for in um in fifth edition uh that you can you, you don't have to just use their setting to do it you can drop them into your own setting or to forgotten realms or or uh you know i think it's funny <laughs> they kickstarter was well received and everybody's excited about about the weird wastelands which is this book from 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 the, from the folks at webdm and, and of course, a lot of it is like, finally, well, nobody's going to do Dark Sun. We'll do it, you know. And uh, they get that, they get that book nearly. They get the Kickstarter launched and, and finished, and they're they're working hard to get that book out early next year. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, Wizard starts hinting that you know, Dark Sun is now imminent from for uh, for uh, <laughs> for us. But speaking of domain management, you know, uh, I think Joe mentioned Birthright, and that's what Birthright. Uh, in second edition was all about, and it did have those extra rules for, for managing an entourage, and I think an entourage and an army and uh, domain management, but also reputation being a, a part of how that works. It's kind of social capital and, and your your standing and things like this. So, uh, which is funny because I, I you know I think if you, if you follow Matt Colville, he, he loves that he he loves birthright, and it's pretty clear. In fact, I think I, I think I actually I got him to kind of give me a wink and a nod and a comment section one time when he was first talking about his strongholds and followers rules that he was putting together and, and what it entailed and was giving people previews and I'm like are you just really creating birthright and, and I got a response from him in the comment section where I can't remember what he said but it was kind of like you know no that no that's copyrighted but there was kind of this quotes you know like you know I can't do birthright but yeah I'm doing birthright anyway um so I think that covers the, the topics that, that Daniel and um, Jason and and uh, Joe were, were responding to. And there's some more additional rambling for me that I'm sure we'll get more calls on. Hey, BJ, really enjoying your recaps of Storm King's Thunder. It's one of the one the books I passed upon. I generally have collected everything else. Maybe I missed the swords coast book too but i'm sure i have it as a pdf that i bought uh at some point or i have it part of D D beyond right but uh, really enjoying the recap it sounds like a very exciting adventure um i don't know if you ever did against the giants i think it's a homage to against the giants but it sounds totally different which i think is pretty cool um so there you go unless unless the people behind all these machinations are the same but i won't say what that is because that'll spoil it for people maybe so anyway uh love it and it seems very exciting and tough but it's good to have it's good to have savvy players i think hey reputation i guess i missed the subject or i would have called in um in my bx game i think i found a cool add-on to reputation so i just use a reaction role and then as you know as a base to start with and then as the players did things to help one town or another or one group of people or another in the domain then they would get a reputation bonus like for a good deed or whatever so you know eventually 
like they become allies because you know you can't roll something hostile on the reputation roll of 2d6 right the classic 2d6 reputation roll where you know one two one through five something some fight might break out six through eight it's like nothing and then above that it becomes friendly so i think that really worked and you could do that kind of thing just tracking good deeds in 5e and then add it to a particular role charisma role or Hey Carl, thanks for uh, thanks for the comments, everybody. That's Carl Rodriguez of the Geomologist Presents. Um, Carl, uh, yeah, I really like Storm King's Thunder. I, I think it's a well thought out. Um, I mean, it's it's a long adventure path. It takes some commitment, <laughs> but I thought it was one of the better ones they've put out for Five E so far. And I, you know, we're on the downhill slope and. I'd probably, you know, not not immediately pick it up with a new group, but but after a, a time away from it, I'd probably go back and run it again for a, for a, for a group who was unfamiliar with it. It is kind of an homage to Against the Giants without having the same basic plot. Um, I, I think that not all the five E things, but early on they were trying to capture some of the nostalgia for classic D and D, and so they did that. Um, I think. You know, the, the, the Rage of Dragons, which included Horde of the Dragon Queen and, and Rise of Tiamat, I think maybe not as clear to a lot of people, but I think it had, it's got some stuff that I think echoes back to the Dragonlance, the War of the Lance. Uh, but again, it's not the same story. It's not like you're going, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen next. Um, and then I think uh, Princes of the Apocalypse was definitely a, a uh, an homage to the, the Temple of Elemental Evil. Um, similar premise, but again, completely different dungeon, and uh, you know, again, very different. It just it just echoes of that. Of course, Tomb of Annihilation is is a is a a, a very close homage to uh, the Tomb of Horrors. In fact, Sararak is it's it's you know, and that's not a spoiler. I don't think to, to let people know that it, it's ultimately the same villain. Is he's just got a completely new scheme now. Um, that, that, but and, but it's also it's a sort of a combination homage to Isle of Dread and Tomb of Horrors, uh, and then Storm King Sunder to against the Giants. Um, you know, what are some of the other five E ones that they've done? I'm trying to think of that are, are uh, Curse of Strahd. I, I don't think Curse of Strahd is an homage to Ravenloft. It is a remake of Ravenloft because <laughs> you are set on. I mean, you you have more areas to explore and more fleshed out things to do within. Um, the domain of Barovia, but ultimately it's it, it's confronting Strahd with in, in, in a similar, very similar fashion to um, the way you have before in, in the, the original uh, Ravenloft. And then Dungeon of the Mad Mage is, is of course, uh, Undermount, just, just a new version of Ruins of Undermountain. Again, some new material and some new stuff, but it, it's it's more. I think it's more of a remake than an homage. Of course. It's the exact same location, like like like, like Curse of Strahd. It's the exact same location <laughs> as it was in, in the previous editions. Versus the, these earlier ones are, are really inspired by some some stuff that were mostly set in Greyhawk, but, but now we have some Forgotten Realms versions of them uh, for Five E. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it's a good one, and I, I'm I I think I made this before. I, I will get them when they come out, just for because I'm a collector. But I purposefully avoid reading the plots of any of these unless I'm actually going to sit down and run them with somebody on the off chance that someone else is going to, uh, going to run them and I get an opportunity to play.
I guess I should also mention Ghost of Salt Marsh. It's just a conversion of Salt Marsh with some other filler adventures to kind of fill in the gaps, some that had been published before. And then you've got Tales from the Yawning Portal, which are also just a kind of a hodgepodge of uh, adventures that, that were really highly regarded from previous editions that had been converted over for 5th edition. Um, so so they've got a mix of sort of homages, remakes, and, uh, and just... Um, New versions of the, you know, not not even a remake, <laughs> but the, just updated to to fifth edition of, of the of the uh, of the exact same module. So anyway, thanks for the call, Carl. I appreciate it, and I uh, hope to hear from you again. Oh yeah, and also leave it leave it to Carl after all that discussion of hey let's let's come up with a a system and and maybe we can put 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 ink to paper and 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 share with people. And I, I think Carl might have just giving us the answer right there about a simple mechanic to track reputation and then and incorporate it into whatever version of uh, of the game you, you happen to play. Thanks, Carl. Hey, BJ. Daniel from Man's Keep. You're just starting to do your Pathfinder 2 recap. Uh, very interested in it, as I've never played the system, but uh, we talk about the action economy. That's kind of like how it is in Coriolis, actually. You get... Um, three points, I guess is how they say it. And then different things uh, cost different amounts of points. So like, for instance, you could, as you said, move three times your speed. You could attack three times, although you would take a penalty because those are considered quick shots. Or you could do like one normal shot and one quick shot or move and do a normal shot, or you could do a slow shot. And things like, um, because they do have a little bit of uh, magic in a sense, because they have mystic powers, those usually take like more of, again, more slots. So yeah, it sounds like it's a very similar system. Uh, which I think actually does work really well once you get the hang of it, for sure. Uh, I wonder, do you need to, maybe I'll say this, but do you need to use one of your actions to defend yourself? Because in Coriolis, you do. Oh, yeah, that was that was a really good recap. Uh, thanks for doing that, Adventure Call Classic. That seemed really, really fun. Their adventures were always so zany and interesting. So, uh, And that was a fun idea to make it a flashback. I'm always nervous to do that because I'm afraid uh, one of the PCs will die. But I guess, again, you could figure out some way to make it work, just like you guys did with the... How the heck do we not know him? <laughs> so yeah, that was pretty awesome. Hey Daniel, um, yeah, I'm <clears throat> some playing a wizard and not a fighter. I don't, I'm, I, the combat mechanics are not front and center for me. Um, but I, as I understand it, and, and I also think that's the way the shield, maybe the shield spell works as a cantrip in Pathfinder Two, is that you've kind of got your base armor class, and then if you want to utilize your shield, um. For defense, there's a there's a raised shield as an action, and you have to use that as one of your three actions. And I think for a, a wizard, using the shield spell uh, is it, it would, would be the action, and it mimics the the act of raising your shield and, and putting it into play. Um, um, moving forward, I, I think that is part of the. So basically, you're sacrificing one of your three actions to effectively increase your armor class until your next turn. I think that's how it works. Um, you know, Carl can call in and correct me if I'm wrong, um, or anybody else, that's Joe, or anybody else that's familiar with Pathfinder too, or if, or if it comes up next time in play, if I'm paying attention, I'll, I'll make a note of it and come back and, and, and explain it. Um, so, and yeah, you mentioned the flashback, my my Dungeon Crawl Classics um, thing, and, and Jason had mentioned that in his call earlier in the show, and I, I didn't I didn't really respond to his his comments or I had intended to, but. Yeah, Dungeon Crawl Classics does some real gonzo stuff. And uh, as a result of that, um, 
as a result of playing through that, I actually went back this week and watched the 1923 version of The Mummy with Boris Karlov, which I've, I've never watched. It, uh, it was kind of a neat... I enjoyed it, and, and, and then I... Something about, like, there, there's just... It's, you know, the movie would be rated probably PG-13, barely, now. It's, it's not... Even back then... The critics said this movie isn't really scary. It's it's a it's a it's a, it's a kids, it's a kids movie. Yeah, you know, I think one critic even said, um, but it's a great movie. Uh, but but there's a couple couple scenes with a little bit of more sexual tension and innuendo between the, the lead female and both uh, Boris Karloff as Imhotep. Once kind of the spell falls over, but also kind of the hero of the, you know, and and, and then there's a you know there's a little more cleavage than you might see in, a, in an old movie in a, in a couple of the scenes and. Then I realize it's it's a pre-code, um, a pre-code uh, Hollywood p- picture before the studios adopted this sort of code about you know the good guys are always good and the bad guys are always bad and there are no anti-heroes or morally ambiguous people and uh, the bad guys get what's coming to them and the heroes win and you know and and all other sorts of virtuous things which you know included no alcohol you know uh, no no drugs and and uh, no black people kissing white people. <laughs> <laughs> stupid stuff. Uh, but it just, just having played Dungeon Crawl Classics, which is a derivative of D&D, which I was involved in in the 80s and 90s during the Satanic Panic, inspiring me to go watch a movie that basically they were making in defiance of that code because it had been announced, but it had not been widely adopted yet. There was just a, an interesting juxtaposition, and, and, and uh, I don't know if irony is the right word there, but uh, coincidence or cosmic connection somewhere anyway uh thanks again daniel for the call um earlier and 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 just now these last calls to close out the show uh, again that was daniel norton of the bandits keep uh, he has a podcast and his youtube channels go check those out and earlier calls from carl rodriguez of the geomologist presents podcast uh daniel norton uh, uh, Daniel Norton and Joe Richter of the Hindsightless Podcast and Jason Carnley of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Uh, all those podcasts are, are here on Anchor, um, but you can usually find them in any of your podcatching apps. Um, so anyway, this has been another lengthy episode, but it had been, I think, a week since I put one out. And, and the last one, even though it was an hour, it seemed to get – if I just let it sit without, I guess, distracting the audience with new content, it, it got, actually got – a pretty high number of listens compared to the to the ones in the, the the several weeks before it so if hopefully you've stuck with me this long and if you had i appreciate it thank you for listening and i will be back in the future with some more content and that's it for this episode of the arcane alienist i want to thank dave bone for the cover art that i use for the episodes check out ironseer.com and the music is Come and get it by Scott Holmes Music. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, give me a call sometime through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website, and I'll be back in the future with another episode.